My therapist was like, Abby, <laughs> you are experiencing symptoms of PTSD. And I was like, no, I'm not. That's not what that is. I haven't been to a war. And I don't want to be that victim. You don't want to be that girl you see on Dateline. And then next thing you know, I'm that girl on Dateline. From the sunny palms of Los Angeles, this is Bully Buster, the podcast where Rhonda Orr speaks with guests battling the bully culture. Listen to real stories and find real solutions using Rhonda's triangle of triumph, going from victim to survivor to leader. Rhonda is an award-winning executive trainer, columnist, and speaker. She's also served as the founder of two nonprofits addressing child abuse and bullying. Now, here's Rhonda. Welcome back, moms, to episode nine of Bully Buster. Today, we talk with a woman who is the very definition of power and yet is also the very needed woman of today. She has empathy and the courage to help others who have suffered. Abby Bolt was, for over 20 years, a wildland firefighter. She started her career on an elite hotshot crew. She continued on becoming a helicopter repeller, engine captain, and moved up the chain of command to battalion chief. Abby fought and managed fire beside the best of the best in the industry. But then, Abby was raped by a firefighter, someone who should have had her back. Her trust and leadership quickly went up in flames as she found she needed to be her own advocate. She began to hear from others in the same situation. Today, she produces two podcasts, one to get the word out about mistreatment of employees in the fire service, and a second to celebrate women's achievements. Welcome, Abby. I'm honored to have you on Bully Buster today. It is so nice to be here. I can't tell you how excited I was when, one, I heard you were doing this, and two, that you wanted me to be a part of it. I'm so thankful because we have similar stories. My sexual abuse happened as a child. You were sexually assaulted by somebody you were working with. How did he think he could get away with that? I think the way that many people in the professional environment think they can get away with it is culture. I'm sure there are a lot of factors in the moment, things that happen, and he had probably some outside factors to him where he thought that he could get away with it. But I think knowing that the victim is going to be in fear, whether they're a child or an adult, of talking about it is very, very strong. Right. I I know things went through my head when... I was not handling it well, and I was diagnosed with PTSD. I was about 36. So to have it come out at that particular point, it was overwhelming to even tell anyone because I thought, how could this be happening to me? I'm educated. I'm a corporate executive. I da-da-da-da-da went through the list. This is a very tough subject. I think it's such a fear of the unknown. And There's a fear of the known of what has happened and when it comes down to reporting it and dealing with the police side. It's the fear of judgment and the fear of bullying. It's really hard for people to understand. You're so afraid of what people are going to say, how they're going to tease you, how it's going to affect you. My biggest situation was I was worried about how it was going to affect other people professionally, not me, but the other people how an investigation would change that. Because in the professional environment, if someone reports something like this, it's all the brakes hit if they're doing what they're supposed to, right? So 
everybody has to stop, pause, do reports, do investigations, do interviews, and what a mess it makes. It's, it's an extra burden on top of thinking about what just happened to you, right? Well, especially in fire, we're all made to worry about each other and care about each other and that camaraderie and the teamwork. That doesn't stop when you're assaulted. There's that whole in in firefighting, you don't want to look stupid. <laughs> like you're, I mean, in any profession, of course, but you're working so hard every day to be competent, to appear competent, to act competent. And if something like that makes people look at you in a way that's incompetent, it can actually become a safety factor because that next incident you go to, when you're making decisions and you are relying on people following your direction and your leadership, and in the back of their mind, they're just thinking about that assault that you reported a month ago or last year, or it's a huge distraction. And so trust me, my mind when this happened ran a billion miles an hour with all the different scenarios and it causes people to be quiet. Well, I can only imagine because as a child, I took on all the blame. What did I do wrong? Why was I assaulted? I admire you so much, Abby, because it your industry is so strong and you have so many different hats to wear. It seems like it grows exponentially every day, every year, what you have to do. And the training that goes on, how to respond is one thing. But when it actually happens to you, I felt like I just had to stay in the facade of everything. Everything looks good on the outside, and I'm just going to keep it to myself on the inside until right. until you can't. And that's exactly what I did. When this specific situation happened, I was states away from home. I had a long time to drive home and think about it, but everything pointed to just be quiet because I had more fire to fight. I had more work to do. I had, I had a reputation to uphold. And when I show up to an incident, I want to be known for my work not for what happened to me. I don't want those looks from people. I didn't want the pity or the wonder or what if they jumped on his side and I'm just another one of those women that's dragging somebody through the dirt, all of that. I mean, I even thought about his children, his wife. I worried Oh my gosh. what his kids would do when he was arrested, how his wife would feel when she found out, what it would do to her. And no matter how it went down, none of it felt right. It's crazy how much some things can outweigh everybody's like, they needs to be put in jail. This needs to be done. And there's a lot more to it than that. It is not that simple. It's a lot easier, I think, too, when it's somebody you don't know in a situation you can't control and you can point to it, take it to court and put it behind you and have it not connected to you. But when you're connected to it, it doesn't go away mm -mm. when the case is closed. And it takes great courage. When did you realize you are the victim instead of worrying about everyone else going to be a, a victim of his harm. Well, I wish I could say that I was 100% there. Yeah. I wasn't going to tell anybody officially, but I it was haunting me, obviously. And I reached out to my girlfriend, who's a special victims unit detective mm -hmm. now. At that time, she was in homicide. We grew up together, and I was like, holy crap, I don't know what to do. And And on my way home, there was this fire site, a fatality fire site that's in Colorado. It's um, called Storm King and where a lot of people died. And I remember pulling over there and thinking, reflecting. It was just a really good point to get out and stretch my legs and looking down at my shins and seeing the bruises wow. and the cuts and just a lot of signs from the struggle. Oh, it's, it's good. It's just 
I remember those flash moments like that. And that's when I decided to reach out to my friend and just say, I don't know what to do. And I was married at the time and I hadn't even reached out to him. I was in shock. And she said, Abby, you have to report this. You have to. And I'm just like, no, you don't understand. And I told her everything that I was worried about. I said, the team will be taken off the roster. They'll be stood down. Everybody's going to have to go through these investigations. It's it's not fair to them. They're going to lose income. They wouldn't have been able to go to the next fire assignment. Like I just rattled off a million different things. And she said, can you please just come to the police station, do a report, and it will be there if you ever decide to do something with it. And took a lot of coaxing. And she talked me into telling my husband about it and talking to him about it because I just wanted to like never think or talk about it again. Never. But the hardest thing you probably ever had to do. It's just like they show in all the movies. <laughs> it's, they talk about how many women falsely accuse people. And let me tell you right now, going through a rape investigation, there is nothing about that anyone wants to do out of hatred or trying to get back at somebody or trying to falsely accuse. There is there is no win for the victim. I worked with about 74 girls in an all-therapeutic, all-girls boarding school as a life coach. And there was always one that would falsely accuse, but their stories would start not matching up or they would get guilty feelings or there were things that indicated that it wasn't the real thing. I could start discerning who was actually going through that because one in four girls in childhood sexual abuse happens. One in four. One in six boys. And then if you go to women in the United States, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center says that one in five women and one in 71 men will be raped at some point in their life. Wow. That's staggering. But the more I learn about this, the more people I talk to like you right now. I mean, ever since I've started speaking out and I hear and talk to more people, I I believe it. How long ago did this happen to you? This is in 2012. So I did the report, went to the hospital and fast forward, you know, life happens. I was good. It haunted me, but I found that way to put it in a little box in the back of my head. And now, you know, the more that I've unpacked that, the more I realized how it's affected me since then and in many ways. But it's really hard to look back and think that I would have made a different decision because whether or not it's the right thing to do, I it, I would have loved to have walked out the door that day, called 911, had the cops bring him in, the whole nine yards. And if I didn't know who it was, if I didn't know him or if I didn't know it, have it all wrapped up in my professional life, maybe that would have been an easier choice. And people accuse victims of either not reporting it properly or when they should or how they should. And it is so much more complicated than that. And something I just wrote to one of the women in one of the fire groups that I run recently, we talked about our childhood because I didn't talk about this out loud. One of those people was somebody that I had been working with and talking to a lot during that time. He lived in the same general geographic area as this person. And I reached out to him and I was told him, I'm like, I don't know what to do. I know this will ruin the team. He said he was on a hotshot crew. And he said, Abby, where is he? We'll take care of it. Your brothers will drag him out to the back of the bar and beat the you know what out of him, basically. He hurt our little sister and we will handle it. And <laughs> he was very protective and yeah. very adamant. And I was just like, no, no, no. Well, I like your definition of brotherhood. Could you tell me what that is? Brotherhood is really just a way of being and a, it's about 
being there for each other. It's not about men or women. It's it's about tackling common challenges together. Everybody in the fire service is my brother or my sister. There was a fire not long after that. And this was the, the other piece I was afraid of is running into that person in the future. Yes. Because he was a firefighter too. Obviously, we're probably going to run into each other again. And it happened. I got the memo that he was inbound and I went into a panic state. And I didn't know that that's how I would react. And I had a panic attack. And one of the guys I was working with was like, what is up? And I go there. I didn't tell him the details. I just said, but there's somebody coming and I don't know what to do. And I don't know what to do. He's coming and he goes, I'll handle it. He immediately tried to reach out to me, tried to contact me. And it was ruining how I was doing my job. That was one of those effects. It's like how it can really affect you professionally. And he dealt with him and made sure that he stayed away from me during that incident. And so that was that comfort that I had. Maybe I didn't follow through on the legal process because of my fear of that dragging on, but I had somebody to handle it for me. Mm-hmm. The next year, that somebody and his entire crew died in a fire. That was the Granite Mountain hotshots. Oh, gosh. I just had a flash of that's what it's going to be because we lived in Prescott. So you were in that firefighting situation. Right. I was friends with many of them and Jesse Steed was... Oh, gosh one of the captains. And that was my friend that I'd reached out to. And it was kind of my safety rope there of knowing that Jesse and his guys would handle it if I needed him to probably quicker and swifter than the cops ever could. If I said like, hey, I need this guy to back off, they would be there. In in our work culture, you've got people that can take care of you and it doesn't need to be a legal issue. My fear was always, oh, I'm going to get shamed for this. They're not going to believe me or believe in me if they see me as I viewed myself, weak and having panic attacks, PTSD. So when you had that kind of support, like, I believe in you, uh, not only do I believe you, but I believe in you. Right. It was more comforting to me and more secure than going the official route was at that time. It's just culturally a way to take care of it, a social way to take care of it. And But at the same time, when Granite Mountain died, in that fire and Jesse died, it ripped me apart so hard in a way that I didn't know was going to affect me. And people were so shocked. They didn't understand why I was so emotionally affected by that incident. There was something that was hitting me harder. And I didn't realize until later that it was because my emotional safety net was wrapped up in them as my brothers to watch out for me. And when I lost them, I lost that. And it's just a huge loss, I think, to my heart that was deeper than losing friends. I lost the one pillar of support that I leaned on ever since that had happened to me. Were you then victim shamed after that? No, because I still didn't speak up about it. Nobody knew that I was a wreck because of that. Somebody would be like, oh, well, did you have a thing going with somebody on the crew? And it's like, you know, that was the thing is that if somebody thinks you're so sad about someone dying, you must have had something going on if it was some dude. That was what annoyed me. You have no idea the emotional connection that I had. It didn't have something to do with like some relationship. I opened up and let somebody know that I was raped and they were going to protect me from that. It's not something you can explain to anyone. And so I, but I packed it up, packed it up in a box, put it in the back of my mind, (laughs) packed that back there too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm good at it. Really good. Right. If you can compartmentalize, then you don't have to make the choice not to stay a victim. That happened to me also because I chose all the wrong men until Scott. I didn't report things for five years. And by that time, 
an investigation, there was not enough evidence for what my husband at the time was doing to me. So when did you actually choose not to stay a victim? I had talked to the police department about it a couple of times. And where in the state where it happened, there's actually a 20-year statute of limitations. And so the detective was very much like, when you're ready, we'll be here. And that was part of what was scary. I was going through a divorce starting in 2014. Oh, and, my gosh. And dealing with child custody issues. I'm really good about standing up for other people, but I don't like standing up for myself. And, you know, I'd rather fight a fight and be have people be frustrated at me for fighting a fight for others. But I don't, you know, it's just hard to have it be about you. I didn't want an investigation to be about me. But fast forward through a lot of things that happened. And when PBS NewsHour approached me, someone had mentioned to them that I was dealing with some, some BS at work. And when that reporter approached me and she started talking to me about it and she flat out asked me, has anything ever happened? And of course, I just was flooded with emotion. It took quite a while, but after enough conversations with her and when I realized her honesty and sincerity and the security in talking with her as an investigative reporter, I finally opened up. Once I realized that that's what that was going to do is when I decided to talk about it. Because mind you, at this point, my family didn't know. My mom and dad didn't know. They were going to find out about it on national television. And I know it's terrible, but that's where I let them find out about it. Even though I had done all the interviews. Were they upset that you didn't tell? Well, my dad, of course, one of the reasons I probably didn't talk about it is I was afraid my dad would go seek this person out and hurt him and be in jail himself, especially when you talk about it on the news or in an open forum like this, you build up so much anxiety and fear that alone rips you apart. And so I finally did that. It was excruciating. And and going through the media process is probably sets a whole nether realm of PTSD along with it. Did you realize you had PTSD at that point? When I was talking to my therapist, when it was actually like, okay. Because it will take care of you if you don't take care of it. Oh, yeah. But a lot of it is built up with so much anxiety that you drag onto yourself. So I'm trying to remember when the exact time was when my therapist was like, Abby, <laughs> you're experiencing symptoms of PTSD. And I was like, no, I'm not. That's not what that is. I haven't been to a war. And I don't want to be that victim. You don't want to be that girl you see on Dateline. And then next thing you know, I'm that girl on Dateline. A lot of people don't even realize that they have a choice to choose not to stay a victim. And that's the most courageous choice but when you tell that to women, especially because the industry that you're in was mostly men for a very, very long time. My struggle was I didn't want to identify as a victim. Right. I didn't want to be saddled with that. I didn't want that title. And so I think because I worked so long and so hard to not even recognize it as something that happened to me in a way that made me a victim, then like you said, getting it to where it doesn't control you... I've definitely been on some ups and downs with that, trying to, you know, one, accept that I am. And talking to it about it with a reporter is, you know, one of the most blatant and blunt ways to do it because they ask you some really hard upfront questions. And I knew that if I was going to go through all that, it was going to count for something, not just about Abby Bolt, not just about what happened to her but about how I could help other people. So I was talking about that fear when, you know, I was waiting for the news interview to drop on TV and they can't send you a copy of it beforehand. And you don't really know what it's going to be. I literally was sitting there in a ball at, at my boyfriend's house down South and terrified of when this would hit. 
And the producer sent me a link when, as soon as it was released and I watched it and of course I'm just bawling, tears are streaming down my face and I'm so worried about what all my colleagues are going to think and say. And let me tell you, my phone started binging off the hook with texts and messenger and Facebook started blowing up. I had so many people reach out with so much support and nothing negative. I was shocked. That's the hardest thing. People I didn't even know remembered me would reach out. I'm sorry, it chokes me up right now because it was the it was the opposite effect of what I thought it was going to be. I was so afraid because I'd watched so many people be judged for speaking up or be judged for claiming they're being harassed or assaulted or, you know, because I was talking about harassment from an entire government agency. So it was much bigger than just this assault situation. It was many other things. Of course, that was what they really focused it on. But it was about many other things. And and I had people reaching out to me that I didn't even know noticed me. And they would be like, Abby, I worked with you on this fire in Arizona or in Washington on, you know, they remembered the fire season, the name of the fire. They remembered me. And they're like, you were so great. And thank you so much for being so good to us. And they, I just, I was a mess. <laughs> I'm still a mess when I start thinking about it because I was so afraid of all the hate that was going to come from it. Like people calling me out in a negative way like you see happen on social media so much. Did you go through EMDR? I haven't yet. I've been it's been on the docket, but I'm still dealing with the case and the investigator and the attorney, they want me to hold off if possible because it's EMDR is so effective that it will kind of make it difficult for you to recall things properly in an investigation. That's true. Mm-hmm. You can't disassociate anymore as well because it's relieved. I've gone through EMDR. It's such a relief. And we have something we call a triangle of triumph. So on one side is the victim. And we teach that you have to grieve. You have to go through the five stages. And that's on the left-hand side of the triangle. And you also have to make the choice to not stay a victim anymore. Once you make that decision, you're put over to the right-hand side of the triangle. And that's survivor. But people would say to me, oh, you're such a survivor. But it didn't mean anything to me. It just felt like I was existing, putting one foot in front of the other, and I was a single mom of baby. I thought, this isn't doing anything for me. I don't want to be patted on the back for just being alive. And so I came up with, that's the journey. That's where you define yourself before other people do, because bullies want to define you. That's how they control you. And that's how this man to find you in the very first place because he thought he could manipulate you. You were a a huge leader already at that time, right? Right. I was working with somebody that, you know, I talked about in the PBS and the Dateline piece. I was working for a leader that was a total textbook bully. Being sexually assaulted the way that you were at work, to me, is just such a courageous step to go forward. You talk about women and daughters and all of that. And I, I think that I could talk to you for hours, of course, about all this as a as a gal who has a strong mother and I have sisters and nothing warms my heart more than, than working with young girls who then look up to you and want to be just like you and be in the fire service. But what the way that we bring our girls up will determine what they'll do in these situations. There was the haunt of the professional piece. But then there was the haunt of the parental piece. There was the haunt of childhood. Every little thing my mom or dad had said to me my entire life was flashing in my mind and what they would think. 
and what they would worry about or what they would, you know, you go through your whole life as, you know, a, a little girl and, and they didn't mean us any harm. But when something happens to another little girl, and they're like, well, what did she do to deserve that? Or, well, look what she was wearing or look how she was behaving. Victim shaming. Yeah. They didn't mean to damage us. Yeah. <laughs> they don't mean to damage us with that, but you're darn right they do. And that was probably the big reason why I didn't tell them because no matter how right I behaved, how professional I was, how great I was, you still go back to that little girl mode and listen to what your parents say and worry, 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 worry. And I just told somebody about this the other day. She reached out to me because she was having issues with her dad and what he was telling her, like how to behave on a fire crew and how she should wear her clothes looser to make sure that she doesn't give off the wrong idea and all this stuff. And that makes me so angry. They're strict parents and they wanted us girls to be respected. I noticed you have the Not Me Mm -hmm. program and I want to ask you about that. But they have started to be much more blunt about talking about things and reporting things. And it's talk, talk, talk. You, you need to talk about suicide. If you don't talk about it, it's more likely to happen. Those are the statistics. But giving permission to girls, they're not responsible for the behavior of a boy. I still have trouble accepting that. We're trained. Yes, because I still have that feeling. If I walk down a dark alley and I make myself vulnerable, you know, and no, it's not my fault if somebody hurts me, but I could choose a different alley. That comes back to everything that we have. So we put that into this victim shaming within ourselves because we narrow it down to something like that and where it's not true. They're still not allowed to attack you. They're still not allowed to do that to you or to catcall you or to do any of that stuff. But it is it is so hard because like you said, it's the culture and it's where we're at. And that the whole Me Too thing, when that started rolling out, it hit me hard. I started reading more and more posts. I started ignoring posts because I didn't want to hear about it because I didn't want to relate to it. I didn't want to associate with it because I'm like, oh my God, I'm I'm just like her. I would read um, an experience and think, oh my God, me too. And I didn't want to think that. I don't even want to get on the train of fashion. I felt exactly the same way because to me, some people were reporting things like I was patted on the butt. And yes, that's not good. You You shouldn't have that happen. But it is not like being raped. Right. I felt like it was a fashion trend and it was making me mad mm-hmm. because everybody felt like they had to be in on it to be trendy. And I said, this is not a trend. This is cultural horror. This is a horror story. Well, and I was still on the point of not wanting to ever give myself a victim title or ever wanting to accept that I was or accept that it happened. I didn't call it rape. I just couldn't say it. It was during a therapy session where she finally got, she's like, Gabby, gosh, dang it. This is what happened to you. And I just kept saying, you know, finally I said assault and then sexual assault. And then I just did not want to embrace it. It was a part of that compartmentalizing. I was able to just put it out of my head and pretend like it wasn't there. And But the Me Too thing was really hard because that made me, if I, if even if it was in my brain, my brain had a little hashtag Me Too within it. It was me jumping on that victim bandwagon with everybody else who had ever been hurt in the world. And I'm like, no, that's not me. I don't get hurt. I am too strong for that. I don't tolerate that. Talking to the reporter, and that's when they started doing that piece. And the more I talked to her and the more that I thought about it and realized that, okay, if I do talk about what happened to me and if I do embrace this, look at how many other people it's going to help. And I I finally accepted it. I was like, okay, because you know what? You're right. And 
Liz Flock that did the report from PBS. She's an amazing woman, an amazing writer. She helped me see that and I appreciate PBS so much. They were really great. And so was NBC Dateline. That producer was amazing. And they helped me see how many people I would be helping. It was true because then afterwards, the amount of people that reached out to me, whether they were sharing their story with me or asking for advice or just saying thank you. And the men who reached out to me from the fire service and from other places to say, I never realized. I think when you become a victim, especially of something like rape, that it starts to become your mission in life to say no more. The generational cycle ends here. And to to step up when they need to about that or any other way that they're wronged and being able to put your foot down or being a good bystander, being there for someone. And like you said, yeah, I, I didn't feel like I was in fear of what I might lose because one of the few people that I reached out to and shared with, the one that I reached out to for protection, for literal protection, died in a fire. Your brain goes, well, don't lean on anybody because they're not going to be there. I didn't want people that I love or that love me to know because I didn't want that look in their eyes. I understand you didn't want to be the victim. When I was going through the survivor side, I developed something called the five C's. And it was civility, courage, confidence, creativity, and communication. So I defined myself so that other people could not with those things. Like, what does civility look like to me? It's be caring, be considerate, have courtesy, yes, manners, but still have the courage to report, 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 and to stand up for other people like you who've had that experience and they can't. They're impeded by victimhood. They don't know what it looks like to choose not to stay a victim. And then to do something with your creativity, it looks like you did your podcast. Is that when you decided that this was where you were going to use your creativity and your communication skills to really set your mission up for other people? When I took a stand, I took a stand against my employer and sharing this story was just a piece of that. I didn't want it to all be dark and I didn't want it to all be sad. So that's why I started two podcasts. I started one called Up in Flames because it was, it's all about whenever you start, you report something, you feel like you're going to go down, right? You're going to go down in flames, how that saying goes. And you're burning bridges, you're pissing people off. The people who are you're accusing and pointing out of doing something wrong are looking at you and trying to make you look bad. It tears you apart. I mean, it's definitely affected everything in my career when I started to speak up. But why do we have to go down? When things are going bad and things are crashing and burning, why can't we turn them around and go up in flames and create something else? And that's what I've been trying to do. Well, I applaud you for that. We are still a culture of you are the victim and you're a bad person to become a victim. And bullies have to always one up. How do they do that? They push you down. They make it all about your fault. Instead of having their own courage, they try to steal it from you to one-up you so that they do look good. It took a long time for me to realize that. I thought that it just happened in school. And, and I actually had a union rep for our, our agency who painted the picture for me. He's like, Abby, you are textbook being bullied and mobbed. And you are the perfect victim for it. And I was like, what? 
and he read to me like, he goes, I just went through a, a new refresher training and, and it reminded me of what you're going through. And he like reads off this list of attributes of the perfect victim for bullying and mobbing. And he's like, high performer, direct communicator, da 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 And he goes through all this. You are exactly what bullies go after. Once that union rep pointed all that out to me and I started studying on it, I was like, oh my gosh, I get it. Now I'm seeing the psyche of it. I just thought my kid who was in school and I would go attend these anti-bullying meetings for the playground issues. And then I started comparing. It was like, it's exactly the same. And that's why I started both. So I did Up in Flames so that I could use as a platform to get people to listen and be like, hey, you're doing it wrong or you need to do it better. And that's what that's about. And then I wanted something that was just a way to make women shine because we see all these news stories. There's so much content out there about males in these hardworking industries. And I wanted to create a place just for females, but just the fire service wasn't good enough to me. I needed more. I needed, because I had girlfriends in law enforcement and the military. And so I created her brotherhood as a way for them, for women who put their lives on the line to share their stories, their struggles. I want women, one, to realize that other girls out there do that because it's amazing how many young ladies have no idea they can be a fighter pilot. They have no idea they can be a firefighter. And to hear some really great heroic stories and to hear some of the good stuff and not always have it be the headlines of a woman in the fire service be rape, not always have it be harassment. And so that's what I did with that podcast. I've heard some of it and it's just remarkable. You're on that mission and you're going, you already are helping a lot of people. You would just be amazed at how many people reach. I mean, today I got messages from women I've never met that are saying, help me, I don't know what to do or what should I do about this situation it's mostly workplace situations and it's no matter how much education we do, no matter how many podcasts we make, no matter, I mean, it's still happening. It's still out there and finding creative ways to deal with it, to deal with your own psyche. Like you're talking about the victimhood, you know, we just all have to help each other and trying to make my little mark in the world. Some people reached out to me about this, not me thing. Not me. What does that mean? It's about not letting yourself become a victim, not tolerating it, not putting up with it, standing up for someone else, not letting it happen to them. And of course, we're talking about someone being raped in the secrecy of someplace. It's really hard to make that. But by helping people either prevent it or know how to put their foot down when dealing with assault or how to speak up about it doesn't mean nothing's ever going to happen to you. But you are going to put your foot down and make it stop. A couple of attorneys started it. They asked to meet with me. And so I went and I had dinner with the two of them two amazing men. They live down in Beverly Hills. Their families are so wonderful. And when I heard the reasons that they went into this, into the Not Me thing, they created an app. They wanted to create an outlet and Not Me is the name of it. They wanted to create an outlet for people to report it and get help. They had both worked for a law firm that was for big corporations. They spent all their time trying to take down little employees who spoke up and that employer paid them to knock them down a peg and get uh -huh. rid of them. And they tolerated that long enough to where they decided they wanted to do something about it. They left the law firm and started their own thing trying to help victims. One of them, his name's Dominic. It's Dominic and Ariel. And we're eating dinner and he's telling me about his family and his wife. He goes, you know, my wife, she works for a, uh, the county or city down there. And she's a prosecutor for special victims. And she works so hard and she helps so many people in the most difficult situations, children and women. He said she comes home 
it's so hard on her and she works so hard, but she has this sense of accomplishment. She's doing something good. And he goes, I wasn't feeling that. I was helping these big employers take down people who were just trying to support their families. I wanted to come home with that feeling. I wanted to accomplish something and be helping someone. So that's why I decided to join Ariel and and start Not Me and Empower Law Firm and help people like you. And I'm just sitting there, huge tears on my eyes, trying to eat my steak. Oh my God. (laughs) You need to tell everybody that because that is exactly the kind of people everybody wants to get behind because you guys are doing it for the right reason. They threw everything out there. They had easy attorney jobs at a big firm where the money was rolling in. They took a chance to go help people like me with an app. They created an app, spent all this money so that people could anonymously report things, whether it's bullying or assault, whatever it is, and to feel safe because people just don't feel safe reporting things to their employer or to the police. So they report to them and they help them guide. They may say like, you need to send that to the police station or they'll, they'll give them free legal help. They'll represent them for free. They'll maybe reach out to somebody if they need them to reach out to their employer and say, hey, you need to stop this. It's really amazing. And so the idea of not me, the hashtag not me instead of hashtag me too is now that's what I'm about. I'm about, no, you are not going to do this to me. I am not going to let you do that to my friend. You know, because my one of my biggest pet peeves is the bystanders who walk away. We've seen this recently charged with murder because they are standing by. But I noticed that you have the acronym FIRE. What does that stand for? Fearlessness, integrity, resilience, and empathy. It's not necessarily about being fearless, though. Like, you know, don't be afraid of anything because that's not reality, right? Fear is what drives us to do a lot of great things in our life. But it's fearing less. Just like you said, being able to not remain in that victimhood, to not let them do that to you, to not always feel that way, to fear a little less and go report that bully, to go report that your friend was getting picked on, to go report that you were raped. And integrity, that one speaks for itself. And resilience. My gosh. Everything you and I, right? (laughs) Everything you're you're talking about today. (laughs) I mean, everything you're talking about right now is all about being resilient. It's almost impossible to stand up all the time. You're going to get knocked down, but can you bounce back up? Can you get up once you've been hit hard? And that's hard. How can you have empathy and still have the courage to report it? I think that's a hard combination. And it is true. Victims are often the most sensitive people, Mm -hmm. the most caring, the most considerate, people who really actually love other people. When I was assaulted, what was haunting me was the empathy that I had for other people I was working with. I even had empathy for my attacker's wife because I didn't want her to have to deal with all of it. You're a good person. I want to talk about empathy because when we talk about suicide prevention and we talk, I mean, that's, I've been on the critical incident stress management teams and the suicide prevention groups and response groups. And we're, we're in this culture now, we're pushing through to where we're helping everybody understand how others are feeling and to be more empathetic. So the people that are going to pick on you the most for speaking up or pick on you the most for being a victim they're going to be ones that aren't empathetic. They have no idea what it's like to be in your shoes. So it's all about stepping into someone else's boots, feeling what they might be feeling, seeing something through someone else's eyes, which is really hard to do. But before you judge someone and think, how could she go to the police with that? How could she be on the stand doing that? How could she file that report or that complaint? Why would that person do that? 
you have to put yourself in their boots for a minute and try to see through their eyes or you're not going to understand. And people that don't have empathy, it's because they refuse to do that. We've all, I've been guilty of it. Everybody's guilty of it all the time. But I just want to talk a little bit more about it to get people to do it a little more often. I think it's a great platform. How do you lead the final part of the triangle? Your triumph (sighs) over tragedy, I love. I love Mm. that phrase too. So what is your final message to moms with daughters and sons? Oh, man not cry when you ask me that. Because <laughs> I, I mean, immediately my son's face and my niece's faces are just like blinking lights in my, my head right now. Teach them to be strong and teach them it's okay to be weak. That is perfect. Abby, I appreciate you so much for coming on board and having this difficult conversation with me. You are such an asset to our culture. And I'm thankful for what you have been able to choose not to stay a victim and go through the survivor stage and now you're leading and you've been inspiring to me. Thank you very much. Well, I thank both you and your husband, Scott, for what you guys are doing. You're both doing some really great things, meeting and introducing some really great people and concepts and you both are a blessing. So thank you for that. My takeaways from talking with Abby Bolt are how she, a woman serving as a leader in the high-risk wildland firefighting service, decided to not stay a victim by, number one, realizing she was a victim and rape was certainly not her choice. She is making the courageous decision to report it. She chose not to stay in denial. So many others who haven't experienced the damaging effects of being a rape victim would have been happy to have it swept under the rug. Number two, having the confidence while still experiencing PTSD to report her rape, going on national TV with PBS NewsHour and NBC's Dateline took a lot of courage. Abby kept her empathetic nature and dismissed those who cannot stand in her firefighting boots. Number three, she created her two podcasts, up in flames, and her brotherhood to get her message out. She's helped so many women and men in the wildland firefighting community who needed her inspiration and guidance. Learn more about Abby Bolt at our website, bullybuster.us slash Abby. Thank you for joining me on Bully Buster. You may find so much more information on my website, bullybuster.us. And that's where you can contact me about speaking to your group. I'd love to meet you. Until next time, let's build civility for a new generation. Go to Rhonda's website, bullybuster.us, to subscribe so you won't miss an episode. That's also where you'll find information about having Rhonda speak at your event or school. It's all at bullybuster.us.